Volume the Second, Chapter Eight of Helen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen by Maria Edgeworth. Volume the Second, Chapter Eight. There is no better test of the strength of affection than the ready turning of the mind to the little concerns of a friend, when preoccupied with important interests of our own. This was a proof of friendship which Lady Davenant had lately given to Helen, for, at the time when she had entered with so much readiness and zeal into Helen's little difficulties and debts, great political affairs and important interests of Lord Danvers were in suspense, and pressed heavily upon her mind. What might be the nature of these political embarrassments had not been explained. Lady Davenant had only hinted at them. She said she knew from the terror exhibited by the inferior creatures in office that some change in administration was expected, as beasts are said to howl and tremble before storm or earthquake or any great convulsion of nature takes place since lady davenant's return from town where lord davenant still remained nothing had been said of the embassy to russia but that it was delayed lady cecilia who was quick and where she was not herself concerned usually right in interpreting the signs of her mother's discomfiture, guessed that Lord Davenant had been circumvented by some diplomatist of inferior talents, and she said to Helen, When an ass kicks, you never tell it, is a maxim which Mamma heard from some friend, and she always acts upon it, but a kick, whether given by ass or not, leaves a bruise, which sometimes tells in spite of ourselves, and my mother should remember another maxim of that friend's, that the faults and follies of the great are the delight and comfort of the little. Now, my mother, though she is so well suited, from her superior abilities and strength of mind, and all that, to be the wife of a great political leader, yet in some respects she is the most unfit person upon earth for the situation. For, though she feels the necessity of conciliating, she cannot unbend with her inferiors, that is, with half the world. As Catalani said of singing, it is much more difficult to descend than to ascend well. Shockingly, Mamma shows in her manner sometimes how tired she is of the stupid, and how she despises the mean, and all the underlings think she can undo them with Papa, for it has gone abroad that she governs, while in fact, though Papa asks her advice, to be sure, because she is so wise, she never does interfere in the least. But now it has once got into the world's obstinate head that she does, it cannot be put out again. And Mamma is the last person upon earth to take her own part, or condescend to explain and set things right. She is always thinking of Papa's glory and the good of the public, but the public will never thank him, and much less her. So there she is, a martyr, without her crown. Now, if I were to make a martyr of myself, which, heaven forbid, 
I would at least take the right good care to secure my crown, and to have my full glory round my head and set on becomingly. But seriously, my dear Helen, continued Lady Cecilia, I am unhappy about Papa and Mamma, I assure you. I have seen little clouds of discontent long gathering, lowering, and blackening, and I know they will burst over their heads in some tremendous storm at last. Helen hoped not, but looked frightened. Oh, you may hope not, my dear, but I know it will be. We may not hear the thunder, but we shall see the lightning all the more dangerous. We shall be struck down unless... She paused. Unless what? said Helen. Unless the storm be dispersed in time. And how? The lightning drawn off by some good conductor, such as myself. I am quite serious, and though you were angry with me for laughing just now, as if I was not the best of daughters, even though I laugh, I can tell you I am meditating an act of self-devotion for my mother's sake. A grand coup d'etat. Coup d'etat? You, Cecilia? My dear, I, Helen, little as you think of me. Of your political talents, you don't expect me to think much, do you? My political talents. You shall see what they are. I am capable of a grand coup d'etat. I will have next week a three days congress, anti-political, at Clarendon Park, where not a word of politics shall be heard, nor anything but nonsense, if I can help it, and the result shall be, as you shall see, goodwill between all men and all women. Women? Yes, there's the grand point. Mama has so affronted two ladies, very influential, as they call it, each, Lady Masham, a favorite at court, and Lady Bearcroft, risen from the ranks on her husband's shoulders, he a man of law. Sir Benjamin Bearcroft, and very clever she is, I hear, but loud and coarse, absolutely inadmissible she was, though, till lately, and now only tolerated for her husband's sake, but still have her here I must. I think you had better not, remonstrated Helen. If she is so very vulgar, Lady Davenant and the General will never endure her. Oh, he will. The General will bear a great deal for Mamma's sake, and more for Papa's. I must have her, my dear, for her husband is of consequence, and though he is ashamed of her, for that very reason he cannot bear that anybody should neglect her, and terribly Mamma has neglected her. Now, my dear Helen, do not say a word more against it. Very few words had Helen said. I must ponder well, continued Cecilia, and make out my list of worthies, my concordatum party. Helen much advised the consulting Lady Davenant first, but Lady Cecilia feared her mother might be too proud to consent to any advance on her own part. Helen still feared that the bringing together such discordant people would never succeed, but Lady Cecilia, always happy in paying herself with words answerable to her wishes, replied, that discords well managed often produce the finest harmony. The only point she feared was, 
that she should not gain the first step, that she should not be able to prevail upon the general to let her give the invitations. In truth, it required all her persuasive words and more persuasive looks to accomplish this preliminary and to bring General Clarendon to invite, or permit to be invited, to Clarendon Park, persons whom he knew but little and liked not at all. But as Lady Cecilia pleaded and urged that it would soon be over, the whole will be over in three days, only a three days' visit, and for Mamma, I am sure, Clarendon, you will do anything for her, and for Papa, and your own Cecilia. The general smiled, and the notes were written, and the invitations were accepted, and when once General Clarendon had consented, he was resolutely polite in his reception of these to him unwelcome guests. His manner was not false. It was only properly polite, not tending to deceive anyone who understood the tokens of conventional good breeding. It, however, required considerable power over himself to keep the line of demarcation correctly, with one person in particular to whom he had a strong political aversion, Mr. Harley. His very name was abhorrent to General Clarendon, who usually designated him as that genius, Cecilia, that favorite of your mother's, while to Lady Davenant Mr. Harley was the only person from whose presence she anticipated any pleasure, or who could make the rest of the party to her endurable. Helen, though apprehensive of what might be the ultimate result of this congress, yet could not help rejoicing that she should now have an opportunity of seeing some of those who are usually considered high as human veneration can look. It is easy, after one knows who is who, to determine that we should have found out the characteristic qualities and talents in each countenance. Lady Cecilia, however, would not tell Helen the names of the celebrated unknown who were assembled when they went into the drawing-room before dinner, and she endeavored to guess from their conversation the different characters of the speakers. But only a few sentences were uttered, signifying nothing. Snuff-boxes were presented, pinches taken, and inclinations made with becoming reciprocity, but the physiognomy of a snuff-box Helen could not interpret, though Lavater asserts that everything in nature, even a cup of tea, has a physiognomy. Dinner was announced, and the company paired off, seemingly not standing on the order of their going, yet all, especially as some were strangers, secretly mindful of their honors, and they moved on in precedence just, and found themselves in places due at the dinner-table. But Helen did not seem likely to obtain more insight into the characters of these great personages in the dining-room than she had done in the drawing-room, for it often happens that, when the most celebrated and even the most intellectual persons are brought together expressly for the purpose of conversation, then it does not flow, but sinks to silence, and ends at last in the stagnation of utter stupidity. Each seems oppressed with the weight of his own reputation, and in the pride of high celebrity, and the shyness, real or affected, of high rank, 
each fears to commit himself by a single word. People of opposite parties, when thrown together, cannot at once change the whole habit of their minds, nor without some effort to refrain from that abuse of their opposites in which they were accustomed to indulge when they have it all to themselves. Now every subject seemed labored. For the pedantry of party spirit, no partisan will speak but in the slang or cant of his own craft. Knowledge is not only at one entrance, but at every entrance quite shut out, and even literature itself grows perilous, so that to be safe they must all be dumb. Lady Cecilia Clarendon was little aware of what she undertook when she called together this heterogeneous assembly of uncongenials and dissimilars round her dinner-table. After she had in vain made what efforts she could, and, well skilled in throwing the ball of conversation, had thrown it again and again without rebound from either side, she felt that all was flat, and that the silence and the stupidity were absolutely invincible. Helen could scarcely believe, when she tried afterwards to recollect, that she had literally this day, during the whole of the first course, heard only the following sentences, which came out at long intervals between each couple of questions and answers, or observations and acquiescences. We had a shower. Yes, I think so. But very fine weather we have had. Only too hot. Quite. The new buildings at Marblemore, are they getting on, my lord? Do not know did not come that way. Whom have they now at Dunstanbury? was the next question. Then in reply came slowly a list of fashionable names. Sir John died worth a million, they say. Yes, a martyr to the gout. Has Lady Rachel done anything for her eyes? Gone to Brighton, I believe. Has anything been heard of the North Pole expedition? Not a word. Crockley has got a capital cook, and English, too. English, eh? English, yes. Lord Davenant hoped this English cook would, with the assistance of several of his brother artistes of the present day, redeem our country from one half of the Abbe Gregor's reproach. The Abbe has said that England would be the finest country in the world, but that it wants two essentials, sunshine, and cooks. Good, good, very, voices from different sides of the table pronounced, and there was silence again. At the dessert, however, after the servants had withdrawn, most people began to talk a little to their next neighbors, but by this Helen profited not, for each pair spoke low, and those who were beside her on either hand were not disposed to talk. She was seated between Sir Benjamin Bearcroft and Mr. Harley, Sir Benjamin the man of law, and Mr. Harley the man of genius, each eminent in his kind, but he of law seemed to have nothing in him but law, of which he was very full. In Sir Benjamin's economy of human life it was a wholesome rule, which he practised invariably, to let his understanding sleep in company, that it might waken in the courts, 
and for his repose he needed not what some great men have professed so much to like, the pillow of a woman's mind. Helen did not much regret the silence of this great legal authority, but she was very sorry that the man of genius did not talk. She did not expect him to speak to her, but she wished to hear him converse with others. But something was the matter with him. From the moment he sat down to dinner, Helen saw he seemed discomfited. He first put his hand across his eyes, then pressed his forehead. She feared he had a bad headache. The hand went next to his ear with a shrinking, excruciating gesture. It must be the earache, thought Helen. Presently his jaws were pinched together. Toothache, perhaps. At last she detected the disturbing cause. Opposite to Mr. Harley and beside Lady Davenant sat a person whom he could not endure, one, in the first place, of an opposite party, but that was nothing, a man who was, in Mr. Harley's opinion, a disgrace to any party, and what could bring him here? They had had several battles in public, but had never before met in private society, and the aversion of Mr. Harley seemed to increase inversely as the square of the distance. Helen could not see in the object adequate cause for this antipathy. The gentleman looked civil, smiling, rather mean and quite insignificant, and he really was as insignificant as he appeared, not of consequence in any point of view. He was not high in office, nor ambassador, nor charge d'affaires, not certain that he was an attaché even, but he was said to have the ear of somebody, and was reputed to be secretly employed in diplomatic transactions of equivocal character, disclaimed but used by his superiors, and courted by his timid inferiors, whom he had persuaded of his great influence somewhere. Lady Cecilia had been assured, from good authority, that he was one who ought to be propitiated on her father's account, but now, when she perceived what sort of creature he was, sorely did she repent that he had been invited, and her mother, by whom he sat, seemed quite oppressed and nauseated. So ended the dinner, and, as Lady Cecilia passed the general in going out of the room, she looked her contrition, her acknowledgment that he was perfectly right in his prophecy that it would never do. End of volume the second, chapter eight.